0: this morning, I've um, titled my message, Doing Church the Jesus Way. Doing Church the Jesus Way. Uh, You know, I had somebody here from the Assemblies of God, a senior minister, many months ago, and uh, his job is to go around churches and evaluate them and, and, you know, make assessments on behalf of the Assemblies of God denomination. As, as one of their chief executives. And, and, and he, he said something uh, w- w- which was quite challenging because uh, he said, I've been to many, many churches and yours is one of the more excellent ones. And uh, now you know that, that that might excite you, but it certainly didn't excite me because how do we evaluate excellence in terms of scripture? The defining point is the Bible, right? And for me, a church of excellence is a church that is impacting its community in a visible, tangible way. We have an atmosphere of excellence here. Everything is perfect and in line and, you know, uh, uh, nothing is out of order. and, And... is that excellence that Jesus is looking for. And and that challenges my life personally at this point in time to do more for God tomorrow out there in the marketplace than we did yesterday. In the book of Luke chapter 10, we have the story of Jesus who speaks to a lawyer who asked him a question. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. You see, Jesus had appointed 70 and they had gone out and they had preached the kingdom of God and they came back all excited because I don't know about you, but a harvest is an exciting time. The harvest in Jewish history Was the apex of the Jewish people. And in celebration of that harvest, they brought gifts to God. And a harvest, in practical terms, means lost men and women coming into the kingdom of God through what we do here. That is how I would evaluate excellence. And that's very challenging. And and here is this theologian. Theologians tend to be cynical because they believe that the tree of knowledge dwells between their two ears. I know many theologians, many teachers of the law, and they are great teachers. But when you look at their churches, there are no visible fruit. I told a famous teacher in this nation who is now overseas and ministering in Europe. I said, you know the problem with you teachers. You like to tell us pastors how to do it, but you haven't done it yourself. I read a book on how to plant a great church, but the guy who wrote the book hadn't planted the church himself. Wow. So, It's one thing to have a head full of theological knowledge and to test everything we hear and see because that is what theologians often do. But it's another thing to take the practicalities of the message of Jesus and give it to people who least deserve it. That's called grace. You see, the the people who were most upset about Jesus were religious people. Religious people. They could read the first five books of the law without even looking at the text by heart. Wow! But then, they decided to add to the first five books of the law 600 other laws which were called the oral law of God. In other words, they began to realize in order to keep our religious beliefs pure, we have to add something to it in order to keep the bad people out and the good people in. That's what church is. It's going very quiet here. Aren't you glad I'm back? The teacher of the law, he gets up, he gets up and he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? He already knew. How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And today, in order to do church the Jesus way, we need to define clearly who our neighbor is. Who is my neighbor? In Jewish terms, my neighbor is the person sitting next to me. We have the same theological worldview. We keep company with the right people. Jesus turned theological belief systems upside down. That is why they called him a friend of sinners. Wow. In your social circle, do you have sinful people? Oh, no. I wouldn't do that. I was in in the Philippines recently and I went to a restaurant for a meal, and what was the name of the restaurant, Jerry's Grill. Okay, and I took my granddaughter with me, and uh, the pastor's wife who took me out for dinner said, but pastor, We don't go there. I said, why? It's in a public shopping center. Oh, they serve beer there. I said, wow, I feel comfortable. Our theological blindness can block us from the reality That God loves lost and sinful people. And I said, I don't know about you, but you have the option of leaving, but when I say Jerry's Grill, it's not going to be anything less. And I said, Can you do me one thing more? Can you take a photo of me at the grill? With the bottles in the background. So I can put it on my Facebook page. To upset a few of my friends. (laughs) That's just the way I'm wired. I think I've got a perspective on Jesus. That some of you don't have. God bless you. By the way we are going to. I've got a perspective on Jesus. That might embarrass some of you. And then. That lady told me, she said, even the JR pastors don't go there. You know, they live at a higher level of spirituality. I said, what? Last night, out there in the suburbs, one of the JR pastors, in case you're listening, hi, I won't name him, took me to Jerry's Grill for dinner. That's how I knew Jerry's grill has good grill food. And I said, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. You know, sometimes who writes your theology? Who writes your theology? Facebook, Instagram. When I want a word of direction from God, I go to my Bible. Amen? I like Jerry's Grill. I took my wife there. You know, sometimes we major in the minors. And this guy, he wasn't a bad guy, but he had just grown up in an environment with theological bias. You and I are victims of our environment. We are. He was a cynic. A cynic is one who opposes everything that doesn't line up with their beliefs. And I know, because I've walked that journey until I came to an understanding that where would I be but for the grace of God? Where would you be this morning? but for the grace of God. So Jesus has to tell him a story. And when Jesus told stories, it was really challenging. And he said, you have answered correctly. Verse 28, do this and you will live. But the lawyer, wishing to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? The question I want to ask you this morning, who is your neighbor? You know what I've realized? The church is the only institution that shoots its wounded. That's true. Today, in this context, in the last one week, we've had some some really challenging news go around, and and it's thank because of social media, it's universal. And we we are not God, so we don't need to sit in judgment of somebody else. The moment you realize you're not God, and you are saved by the grace of God, you become gracious to somebody who has fallen. And when your heart is filled with pride and self-righteousness like this teacher of the law, be careful because I can assure you at some point in life you are going to trip and fall. And and, and let me tell you something. The, the root of all failure is pride. Not moral issues. Pride. Pride is subtle. The moment any preacher elevated himself above God, God will step back and cause him to fall. And it's happening even right now. Not just in one country, but in two. So the temptation to pride comes out of knowledge. The teachers of the law they understood not just the first five books of the Bible, they understood all those 600 plus laws. And the law of God became the focus of life, not realizing that Jesus has come to fulfill the law and bring a measure of grace into the lives of people who least deserved it. I am shocked and amazed at the number of graceless people who are coming into God's kingdom at this point in time, politically and otherwise, people whom you would never believe would come to the gospel are getting saved. Only because somebody believed in the grace of God enough to share the truth of the gospel with them. If you believe in the gospel and its transformative power, you will reach out to those people whom in the natural you cannot reach. And I was thinking of this this young uh, pastor's wife. And, and, you know, they are praying every weekend and asking God, you know, to bring people into the life of the church. And And I realized God can't do that because God can't trust them. If God can't trust you with hurt and broken people, he won't bring them in. And I was shocked. I was shocked because I didn't notice the beer bottles they I looked a little more closely. It's a, it's a restaurant and it's one of the best in town there. And they serve grilled food and it's excellent. Don't go there because they serve beer there. Jesus is called the friend of sinners. If you look, there were, I read an article three days ago, there were there are hundred and thirty-nine, I think, recorded instances of Jesus personally interacting with individuals. And of those hundred and thirty odd plus, hundred and twenty of them are outside the temple. Wow. Our interactions are all inside the temple. Because that's our neighbor. So Jesus begins to tell a story. The Pharisees weren't bad people, the teachers of the law weren't bad people. But but you know, they were driven by this desire for religious perfection. The moment you are driven by a desire for religious perfection, you will not understand the grace of God. And you will not understand however much you try, you will never be perfect. The grace of God is something we embrace So here is the story. And Jesus replied and said to him, Verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him for dead. Wow. Now, you know, that guy deserved what he got. You don't go down that road alone. It was a dangerous road, it was a small road. Jerusalem, where the temple was, Jericho is where the, the priests lived. And yet, he made a life choice. And let me tell you something. Grace doesn't mitigate sin. When we make bad life choices, there are consequences. There are. Paul says in Romans, you know, God forbid that I should sin. Now that I have embraced the grace of God. So in this story, there are three individuals. One is a priest and one is a Levite. Who are the priests and the Levites? Those are the guys, (coughs) the church people who do ministry inside the church. Everything they do is inside, nothing outside. And they do it religiously. Because they have all these laws. You know, you you had to follow all the laws. And, and, and that's important. You know, the most important thing is you, you get this whole excellent thing right. God doesn't care a stuff about excellence in that sense. Jesus violated laws. That's why they got angry with him. On a Sabbath, his disciples were eating corn cobs. And they said, Hey, it's the Sabbath. Shouldn't your disciples do what John did? John's disciples were different. Who are these guys you are trying to develop? Wow. If you read the words of Jesus slowly, you will find he's always upsetting people. The religious ones. Then then some guys, the, the disciples, they ate food without washing their hands. And, and, and you couldn't do that according to the oral law. You had to wash your hands right up to here. Wow. You can go to Jerry's Grill without washing hands. Oh, you know, we don't do that here. They did an autopsy of dying churches. And one of the major issues in the dying church was its unwritten laws. Wow, there's no room for grace here, bro. We just nail you to the ground. Trust me, it happens, even here. I might be away for two weeks, but I know what's happening all the time. i got two eyes here and two there. I've been in this business 48 years, so I know human behavior enough. When I walk into a church to do a conference, I asked the pastor, I said, um, my job is like a plumber. What are the problems you want fixed? Just be honest about it. Don't, don't waste time. Because wherever you go, human nature and human behavior are the same. John Maxwell said there are alligators in the swamp and it takes you about two years to discover who the alligators are. He's talking about the kingdom of God. It's a demon spirit somewhere. Well, I'm glad I'm stirring them up. You see, the, 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 the priest and the Levite fulfilled obligations within the temple and they were returning home. You know, I've done my job, I've done my service to God, I've done my time, i fulfilled my roster, now I'll just live my life until the next week. And and, and so we move from roster to roster. I'm only using that term for convenience. And then, suddenly there's somebody outside there, and he's fallen by the side of the road, and the priest goes and has a look and he goes to the other side. So, so we have in, in church life all over the world a lot of other side Christians. They live their six days on the other side. They're good people. They're not bad people. But you know, we've got to fulfill the law. i got to show up at 10 o'clock. I won't come one minute before, one minute after. I'm going home. Some of you are like that. The Christian life, my friend, is to be lived more often on the other side of the road. We are hurting, broken, people are crying out for help, and God wants you and me to do something about it. And let me tell you, dealing with unchurched people is messy. It's messy. But Jesus walked into the middle of a mess all the time. One mess at a time. And transformed the lives of people who were messed up. You know why I do what I do? Because I know how messed up I was. Some of you don't. You come from good Christian homes and upbringing. You will never fully understand the grace of God. You might talk about it. You might sing about it. You might proclaim it. But you will not understand the grace of God. Jesus said, who much is given, much is required. So the driving force of our lives is the fact that apart from the grace of God, we are nothing. That's what was Paul's driving force. Paul was 70 plus when he was in the Roman prison and, and, and he is getting ready to die, but he says, bring me the parchments. I've still got work to do. I've got a calling to fulfill. That is kingdom life and doing church the Jesus way. Some of you will take those cards and just keep it somewhere and then look at it after Easter and feed it to the birds. This guy wasn't a bad guy, but he needed a lesson in doing church the Jesus way. So he looked. And he passed me on the other side. Now there's a lot of theological debate about why he did that, and, and if the Bible is silent, let's be silent. But all we know is this: he was indifferent to the hurt and wounding of somebody who needed help. I'm too busy. Can't be bothered. Maybe he's dead. I can't touch a dead body. We don't know. Maybe he's just feigning that. And if I go close enough to him, he'll knock my lights out. Wow. And he's a priest in the house of God. And the Bible says we are priests. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. What are you doing with your life? Monday to Saturday, as you pass by the road and see somebody in a situation that is challenging. Why well, Are you cynical? He deserves it. I know. But I thank God. One day, on the 24th or 25th of December 1974, somebody cared enough for me to carry me to the house of God and begin the process of transformation. Because I couldn't stand up, I needed to be carried. And I constantly put that picture before my eyes. And that is the motivating force of my life, nothing else. So the Levite just did the same thing. But a Samaritan, but in the Bible when there's a word but, it means a change. Something exciting is going to happen. But a Samaritan, wow. You know the Samaritans disliked the Jews and the Jews hated Samaritans. They hated them. The worst insult to a Jew is to compare him with a Samaritan. And Jesus does it to upset him. Wow. If you are sitting here this morning and you are churning on the inside, you could be like this guy that Jesus is trying to get through. Wow. And you know what? He does something that he shouldn't do. He steps out of himself because he had compassion. Compassion doesn't come naturally. Compassion needs a divine flow of God's grace. Because by nature, we only love people we are comfortable with. I see it in the church all the time. You only love people you are comfortable with, that's no merit. We move with our type of people and we distance from others. I can write a book on human behavior in church life because I have seen it. And Jesus is teaching this principle to teach us a lesson that you don't choose whom you love. I do. And often, We have to get out of ourselves, out of our indifference, out of our immaturity spiritually and love unlovable people and do life with them so that we can feel their hurt and only then will they come into the kingdom of God through us. It's a painful business. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, it was almost always one-on-one. Read your Bible again from a different perspective. Almost always, it was one-on-one. Jesus constantly looked for opportunity to walk into somebody's mess and turn their messiness around and give them a purpose for living. But you know the problem with some of you. You've forgotten where you were. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, saved by the grace of God, you came to this country probably carrying a Ford suitcase because that was fashionable at the time. But now you've forgotten. Now your focus is on things that are material. You, you miss the mark. And that's a harsh truth, but that's reality. God owes me nothing. But he saved me by his grace. And therefore, I have a moral, legal obligation not to sit in judgment and condemnation like the priest and the Levite, but to go out and touch a life when the opportunity arises. And let me tell you, people are messy. They are. But God wants to use us to clean that mess. Cynical about someone else's failure isn't Christ-like. When someone fails, good in us must come out. But it doesn't. It cannot apart from the compassion of God. The Bible says in in the gospel that Jesus, when he looked at people, helpless, desperate, as sheep without a shepherd, he convulsed on the inside. And he said, the harvest is plenty, the laborers are few. So when we look at people, we have one of two choices. We we, we can look at them with with a very judgmental, condemning attitude and approach and say, they deserve it. They do. But remember this, there is a consequence. They are already suffering in their misery and shame. We don't need to add to it. I, 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 I saw on the news uh, a school teacher, a young woman in her 30s who have had an intimate relationship with a young 16-year-old student in a school, and I felt so so sorry and burdened to pray for her. Wow. She's already shamed that she can't go even to her own grocery shop because they don't give her food, the stuff she wants. That's a shame. Just one slip, one fall and a whole town has turned against her. Wow. And the shame. You know, when people sin, they experience shame. In the garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they felt they were naked and, and they went and covered themselves with a fig tree and that wasn't enough and God went and killed an animal and took the skin and covered them instead. Our churches are shame-oriented churches. We talk about grace, we sing about grace, but very often we do not dispense grace to people who fail. That's not just the, the church across. And when some churches do show grace, We condemn them also. When you linger in cynicism long enough, you end up at the dark age of life. You're always right, and the other person is always wrong. We live in a cynical culture, a culture that is very cynical about religion. And when you and I as Christians become cynical, we add to the culture. When people have sinned, they feel shame, they feel shamed. But if you and I can fully understand and grasp this thing called the grace of God, we can ask him through the power of the Holy Spirit to open their hearts so that they can receive healing, forgiveness, and restoration and walk in the purposes of God there is often no room in church life for failed people. That's why they don't come. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering thyself, lest you fall. That's harsh, but that's true. Sometimes people fail. All we need to go need to do is to go and sit in there, and mess with them. All we need to do is tell them, "Look, there is a consequence." Yeah, but you are still loved and cared for by a forgiving God, who is revealed to us in the person of Jesus. Last time I went overseas and I was coming back, I was driving from the airport and I had to call I just impelled to call somebody uh, living somewhere on the planet and uh, I haven't spoken to that person for four years, but I felt oh, I'm coming tired out Sri Lankan airlines, you know. I told somebody I don't pay for the smile. I pay for the quality of the aircraft. Get some new ones. I'm not paying for the smile or the Dilma tea. I can buy it from Kohl's. Anybody want tea? Anybody want tea? Anybody want tea? right? Those of you who have to know know that. But I felt, and, and I spoke to that person in the vernacular and I said, I heard you jumped a fence. Now, for the life of me, I don't know what I'm talking about. I was referring to a denominational fence. And I was going to tell him, from bondage, you've gone to freedom. Because that's what fences are for. And before I can say, Jack Rabbit, he started telling me his story about another fence that had been jumped. (laughs) And I said, hoi. That's not what I was talking about. I said, bro, I don't care how many fences you have jumped and you are carrying guilt, but one thing I want you to know, I will stand by you. So on. And then he said, there are another six like us. I said, I'll see all seven of you. When I returned, that's the gospel. I, I didn't know about the fence. God did. But God couldn't use somebody in that country because of the judgmental spirit in Christian circles. So He used somebody from outside. And God knows, I didn't know about the fence. I got the word wrong. There are two words for fence in the Singhala language. I used the wrong one, but I don't. I'm not a scholar, so I didn't understand. But the Holy Spirit used that one thing to get through to him to tell him: No matter how you failed, you have repented. God loves you, cares for you, and wants you to fulfill a destiny. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And I laugh still. I laugh. That's what it is about. I'm opening. I'm establishing an organization in Sri Lanka called Those of Hope for God's hurting wounded warriors. I am. Nobody can stop me. Hallelujah. Because that is the will of God. I don't need to fast about it. I don't need to pray about it. I am going to do it because that is what God wants me to do. That's the need in many nations, that's the need in the church that when we sin, there is a consequence. This man who went down that road was robbed and left for dead, there is a consequence. But you and I heap on additional guilt and condemnation to that rather than elevate and take away the pain and take away the sadness and say, you can do life again after a fall. Wow. I'm reminded of David in the book of Samuel. You know, the most conniving leader, the most manipulative leader in the entire Bible is David. You wouldn't get some guy as twisted as he was. He makes uh, Jacob look like a marshmallow. Yet he says, God says, that's a man after my heart. David committed murder, he committed adultery, he, he, sent that, he sent that guy, you know, Uriah to the front and, and, and then God told him he had to pay a price. He lost his son. But soon after he lost his son, he washes himself ceremonially, he goes into the house of God and he worships. Because he knew one thing, there is life after failure. Remind yourself: We have all sinned and fallen short of the grace of God. So the priest and the Levite represent people in church life who assume that ministry ministry begins and ends in the temple. Not true. You see, according to the laws, oral laws, there have fences. So the priest and the Levite, you know, we don't know whether we can touch this guy because if he's dead, he's unclean. And, And in our churches, we put fences. We put fences to protect ourselves. They're not visible to the human eye. But if you have the gift of discernment and you're spiritually sensitive, you can identify the fences. Oh boy, am I anointed! Long ago, nineteen seventy-five, I remember a sermon preached by an American missionary who came to Sri Lanka. He said there was this big pond, and in the pond they have all these ducks, and they have all fenced different ducks, different fences. Uh, representing the different ministries in the church. We have fences, you know. Yeah, you you, you can see them if you are in, in this long enough. And then the rain came. And when the rain came, the water rose above the fences and the ducks began to swim together. Wow. You know, we tell people, you're new here, you've got to wait a while. Wait till your teeth drop off and your hair turns grey before we use you. There are churches that are dying like that today in this country. In the I used to go and preach at the YMCA in Fort because they give you a free lunch once in a while. So, you know, anything, for, even a headache will take it for free. Right, and, and there was this 70-year-old organist, 70 years old. She's almost, you know, one step away. I'm 77, look who's talking. <laughs> right, and, and she, she, she would not give. If she's sick, somebody else can't play the organ. She, she would take the key and go home. She would actually take the key and go home. And, and she's a Christian. And she would say, nobody plays the organ but me. Wow, you're talking about kingdom life here. In these old Anglican churches, the organist calls the shots, not the priest. The priest just bows to what the organist has to say. I'm not going to play that song this morning. I just don't feel like it. Just throw the organist and the organ both out. Give me one of those churches to pastor. Yeah, you would think these are the devil's advocates and they're inside the kingdom. And so we would have to preach without an organ, without a song. Because the organist is the sick and nobody else can play. Because you know you might damage the organ. Come on, give it a break. We are faithful. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, we are faithful stewards of God's grace. Not only inside the church, but outside it. And what you need to understand is this. That the Samaritan, he looked, he got off, he did something, and he took that dying man and placed him in a safe house. Hear me. Hear me. The church is designed to be a safe house. We are hurting Broken people can be vulnerable and we can walk with them past their hurt and brokenness so they are whole again. But the question is, is it? I don't think so. And I'm in a position to make that judgment because I pioneered this church. I didn't take over somebody else's church. Is it, are we gracious to somebody who's had a lapse? Because we all have. Some are known, some are unknown, but everything is known to God. And are we willing to come alongside people and say, it's all right. We don't want to know all the deep, dark details of your life. But we just want we to know that there is a God in heaven who can heal you of your hurt, who can take you and put his anointing on you and use you once again. Man-made fences were designed to keep people out. But they can only stand for so long. Because when the spirit of God blows, he'll knock your fences down. And let me tell you something. If you want to serve God here, and we ask for two things. Number one is you need to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Number one. Number two, you need to understand or believe that this is the place God wants you. We will use you. You don't need to sit in those worn out chairs for 10 years. I'm serious. Next Sunday I'm speaking on following a vision and every one of you who has a heart for God and a heart for this house is going to be given opportunity somewhere to do something for him that is what the church is about we are going to knock down those fences they've been up there for too long too long and they're designed to keep people out that's why a church doesn't grow you know why churches don't grow because the people inside they don't want them to grow or they want them to grow on their conditions we decide who comes in. Let me tell you something, friend. The day of the cool church is over. There was a guy on Instagram who, you know, he to put photos of himself without his shirt and he got all his six-pack, eight-pack and where is he today? God said, I'll knock it down and he did. Thankfully, by the grace of God, he's learning a new walk in humility because he's fallen from pride. Instagram. I'm cool, and everybody said we got a cool pastor. Churching no more. There's something in us that thinks cool is fashionable. Look at Jesus and His ministry. My God, there was no un- there were no cool people out there. I used to pray for cool people long ago when I was less. Magi- uh, 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 less spiritual, and they would all go to the Assemblies of God Church somewhere. And I said, God, now start giving us the ones they don't want. We'll take them. Look at the church Jesus pastored. Broken, hurting people, prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors. He had the bunch. But they changed the world. Look at the 12 he selected. One let him down, but look at the other 11. He took them. He believed in them. He poured his life into them. He poured his vision into them. And they changed the world. Wow. What are we waiting for? Graduates from some place? Cool. The day of the cool church is over. Because God took his sword and began to cut down cool churches all over the world so that they can look to him. Pride is subtle. Pride is subtle. Pride is subtle. I know at least two ministries in the last 72 hours that have been cut down. Two. Because at the root of both was pride. And I'm not being judgmental. God is a God of grace. But I I believe God will do that so that we can realign our lives To bring it in line with his ministry, his vision. Anything that replaces God will be shaken and then we have to bow. So Jesus tells us, the lawyer, who was the neighbor? And you know how he replies, arrogance, still the arrogance, theological arrogance. Oh, he says, oh, probably the guy, you know, who who, who who took the man and left him at the inn. And Jesus says, go and do thou likewise. Wow. Wow. Here is the conclusion. When you see opportunity in every situation, God leads you into, embrace it. Embrace it. Sometimes opportunity comes disguised as an obstacle. Sometimes. But if you have spiritual discernment, you'll see it. Number two, ask God to break your heart with the things that break his heart. And we are selfish by nature. We are. I know about you, I am. I have to fight this. There's a battle every day. But surrender is about giving him control. Remind yourself if I miss this opportunity we'll give it to another. Whom do you know whose heart is broken? Whose life is messed up? who needs another chance, go out and do what the Samaritan did. Religious people don't do that, but the Samaritan did. And he says, you have to be like the Samaritan. There is no shortcut. True religion, James said, is visiting the widow and the fatherless in their affliction. That's what the Bible says. I want to ask you that question this morning. Are you content with your life? Are you just happy coming to church Sunday after Sunday? Just fulfilling your religious duties and going back. Or maybe you're doing something in some system that we have here and you feel ah oh, well I've done my share for God. <laughs> doing your share for God is out there, not not just in here. Reevaluate your life because one day you're going to stand and give account. Oh boy. I dread that day. But it's coming. You can't get away from that. One day we've got to all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And all that we have done is going to be tried with the fire. Wow. You'll be saved by the grace of God, but you've got nothing else to show for it. Start doing church the way Jesus wants you to do it. First thing is get rid of your cynical spirit. The more theological you are, the more cynical you become. Because you think you have a premium on truth. Become like a child once again. I've done all my learning, somebody said. He's talking about scripture. I've done all my learning. Wow. I was shocked by the statement. Nothing more to teach them. There are people sitting here, they have nothing more to learn because they learned everything. And when you look at the fruit of their ministry, they nothing. If you have a teachable heart and a teachable spirit, God can begin to do something deep and profound in you. And...